0: If you want to call in during this program, jot down the number. It's 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. And I'll be repeating it during the program. If you prefer to email during the program, you can send us an email at dj at kzyx.org. That's dj at kzyx.org. And by the way, archives of this program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and on the kzyx website on something called jukebox. Today, today we're going to continue with the history of psychedelic medicine. We have with us two guests, Tim Scully, excuse me, Tim Scully and Michael Randall, who claim and we'll find out more today that they have manufactured and distributed 100 million hits doses, if you will, of LSD, lysergic acid, diethylamide. So stay tuned for that interview, which is coming up shortly. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. The drug companies have been paying off doctors, as we know, to sell medicines. What this means to each of us is that when you go to a doctor and they prescribe a medicine, feel free to say to the doctor, can you prescribe a generic medicine that might cost less or cost my insurance company quite a bit less? Because the sad truth is that a free lunch may be all it takes to persuade a doctor to prescribe a brand name drug instead of a cheaper generic. Yep, using Medicare's open payment data from 2013, Researchers collected information on 280,000 doctors, actually it was 279,669, who received 63,524 payments reported by drug companies. They concentrated on specific drugs in four categories, cholesterol, lowering statins, two types of blood pressure drugs, and antidepressants. The study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of, if not the most prestigious journal in the United States, found that 95% of the payments were for meals sponsored by drug companies, and the meals were worth about $12 to $18 each. Doctors who were treated to a single meal where drug companies present information about their medications were 18% more likely to prescribe a brand-name cholesterol-lowering medicine. They were 70% more likely to prescribe a brand-name beta-blocker for high blood pressure and 52% more likely to prescribe a medicine for hypertension. And they were more than twice as likely to prescribe a brand-name rather than a generic antidepressant. The more meals doctors had, the more likely they were to prescribe the promoted drug. Wow. The information that the drug companies provided at these lunches inevitably serves the commercial interest of drug companies, according to the senior author of the study, Dr. Adams Dudley. Why is this our system of education for doctors, he asked. The cost of an alternative, sy- an alternative system of drug education would be paltry. Again, what does that mean to each of us listening to this? It means that we need to be educated about having the courage to just look at our doctor as we're getting a prescription and say, can you prescribe a generic instead of this brand-new drug? An easy question to ask. I think we all can do it. Well... People are talking in the news, certainly the political candidates, about what we've been talking about on this station for the last 10 years, namely that there is a socioeconomic stratification going on in this country of historic proportions. When you hear about the one or the one-tenth of 1% sucking up the money, you're not hearing baloney, you're hearing accurate data. The amount of the assets of the United States being controlled by a small percentage of the population has been growing at historic rates. As a few people take over more and more of the assets of the country, that leaves a lesser percentage to be divided up by everybody else. This pushes the middle class down. It pushes the people in the poverty and the poor classes down even further. Now we have data that it's pushing the college students down. About 1 in 10 of California State University's 460,000 students is homeless. 10%, that means 46,000 college students in California, just at that one university system, California State University system, is homeless. And one in five, that's 20% of these college students, do not have steady access to enough enough food. This is a study that is just taking place in order to better understand what's going on as a result of this socioeconomic stratification. The chancellor of these uh, 460,000 students said at a conference this past Monday in Long Beach, This is a gasp. In other words, it knocks your breath. It takes your breath away. It takes your breath away. How many of you, when you were going to college, knew people who were going to college with you who were homeless or didn't have enough food to eat? Well, something to think about. At the same time, malnutrition is sweeping the world. Again, this is a result of this socioeconomic stratification. It's being fueled by both obesity as well as starvation. Yes, very serious levels of both undernutrition and obesity. 129 countries are being studied, and what the report says is that hundreds of millions of people are malnourished because they are overweight, as well as having too much sugar, salt, or cholesterol in their blood, And the bottom line, according to the authors, is we now live in a world where being malnourished is the new normal. What can we do about it? We can grow food. If you have a little backyard, you can grow food. If you have a planter box, you can grow food. Witness what's going on in Cuba where they're growing food in little boxes just around their apartments. In a neighborhood, you can get together with your neighbors and say, hey, can we find a little piece of land together and grow a garden? One of the most strategic things you can do is to grow food. We need food. We need water and shelter. Food. Grow food. Talk to your friends about it. Talk to your families about it. I'll keep harping about it. Grow some food. And, of course, if you can afford it, frequent farmers markets because those are local people who are growing food for the rest of us. More and more people distrust our government. Some statistics indicate that 80% of the country no longer trust our government and perhaps for good reason. In fact, when 80% of the country doesn't Trust the government. One would think it must be for good reason. There is no question that the Tuskegee study is one of the most horrific examples of unethical research in history. For 40 years, ending in 1972, members of the United States Public Health Service followed African American men infected with syphilis and didn't treat them, although they told some men that they did. They did this to see what course this disease would take. There's no question that this experiment shook the foundations of trust between Americans, especially black Americans, and the medical establishment. The study took place in Macon County, Alabama, the county seat of Tuskegee referred to as the Black Belt because of its rich soil and vast number of black sharecroppers who were the economic backbone of the region. The intent of the study was to record the natural history of syphilis in blacks. The study was called the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. When the study was initiated, there were no proven treatments for syphilis. However, In 1947, it was discovered that penicillin was successful in treating syphilis. A total of 600 men were enrolled on the study. Of this group, 399 who had syphilis were a part of the experimental group, and 200 were control subjects. Most of the men were poor. The men were offered what Negroes could only dream of, In terms of medical care and survivor's insurance, they were enticed and enrolled in the study with incentives, including medical exams, rides to and from the clinic, meals on examination days, free treatment for minor ailments, and guarantees that provisions would be made after their deaths in terms of burial stipends paid to their survivors. When penicillin became the standard treatment for the disease in 1947, the medicine was withheld, as a part of the treatment for both the experimental and controlled groups. In other words, these men were allowed to die. Not only that, many of them infected their wives and then unborn children who were born with syphilis. This was a United States government study. Similar, Project MKUltra, which many of you have heard about, sometimes referred to as the CIA's Mind Control Program, was the code name given to an illegal program of experiments on human subjects again, designed and undertaken by the United States government under the auspices of the CIA. Experiments on humans were intended to identify and develop drugs and procedures to be used in interrogation and torture in order to weaken the individual and force confessions through mind control. The program engaged in many illegal activities, including the unwitting use of American and Canadian citizens as test subjects. Numerous methodologies to manipulate people's mental states and alter brain function were used, including the surreptitious administration of LSD and other chemicals. They also used hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, sexual abuse, and torture. It was a huge study. The scope of Project Ultra had research going on at 80 institutions, including 44 colleges and universities, as well as hospitals, prisons, and pharmaceutical companies. The CIA operated through these institutions using front organizations although sometimes top officials at these institutions were aware of the CIA's involvement as the US Supreme Court later noted MK Ultra was concerned with the research and development of chemical biological and radiological materials Capable of employment in clandestine operations to control human behavior. The program consisted of 149 sub subtra- uh, projects, which the agency contracted out to various institutions. So we have one study on black people in Alabama people who had syphilis, who were dying, who could have been treated, who could have been saved. We have another study going on for over 20 years on unwitting American and Canadian citizens who were given LSD and other chemicals without knowing it. Is it any wonder that when word gets out about these studies that it makes American citizens suspicious of their government? Does this not contribute to the fact that 80% of the country do not trust the government. Today, we have with us Tim Scully and Michael Randall, who are going to tell us about their history some 50 years ago of producing what they claim is 100 million doses of LSD and distributing these medicines, these drugs, if you will, Worldwide, Tim Scully, Michael Randall, welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Tim and Michael. By good morning. Of, by way of <laughs> good morning again. By way of background, last time we talked about the beginnings of your association, Tim, with the manufacture of LSD and your association, Michael, with the distribution and later manufacture of LSD. We talked about the fact that Michael Randall was one of the founders of a church called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a non-profit church like all churches, who had, as I understand it, as part of its spiritual formulation, the ingestion and distribution of LSD. Tim, give us just a little brief summary bringing us up to date from what we talked about last week so that we can then continue. We'll be at about 1973 when we start again today. And Michael, I'm going to ask you to do the same to give us a little brief summary from last time, and then we will launch into today and 1973. Tim, please start with us.
1: Okay. um, Nick Sand whose name hasn't come up yet today, Uh, Michael and I all independently took psychedelics and had intense spiritual experiences when we first took them. And we each independently decided that we should share that experience with anyone who wanted to try it. We believed that if most people shared our experience, the world would be gentler. People would be gentler with each other and with the world. And that possibly... Doing that might even save the world. Um, I set out to try to make a lot of LSD and eventually joined forces with Owsley Stanley, who has a sterling reputation as the first underground LSD manufacturer to make consistently pure LSD in substantial quantities. I was his apprentice, along with my friend Don Douglas, and... We worked with him in a couple of labs, one in California and later one in Colorado after the law changed in California, making LSD illegal. Um, In the process of working with Owsley, we also experimented briefly with an early designer drug invented by Sasha Shulgin called STP. And it had, which had the vast advantage of not being illegal, but which over time turned out not to be a very good psychedelic. Billy Hitchcock had a farm in upstate New York called Millbrook that he let Tim Leary and a large number of people uh, use for LSD research in the early 60s. Millbrook was a nexus where people met and. Owsley eventually met Billy Hitchcock there, Nick met Billy there, and met Owsley. A fellow named Ron Stark, and another fellow, a chemist named Todd Svensson, also were at Millbrook. And all of those people were part of the story as it unfolded later. Um, after a series of laboratories, Owsley was eventually busted in late 1967 in Arinda while tableting LSD that we've made in Denver. Um, I set up a second lab in Denver, after tracking down a source of raw material in Europe. The raw material for making LSD was very hard to find. Um, I eventually found a source that had a, a, a kilo of LSD available, which I couldn't afford to buy all of. So I joined forces with Nick Sand, and we bought it together. After my lab in Denver was busted... Nick and I joined forces to set up a new lab in California where we processed the kilo of lysergic acid that I, we'd gotten in Europe. At that time, the doses of LSD that we were producing were about 300 micrograms, so a kilo of LSD was only about a little over 3 million doses, 3.6 million. Uh, over the years, the dose size for LSD went down so that kilos eventually became 10 million doses by 1970 when i had been uh, i i was commuting to court for in denver for the uh, bust of my denver lab ron stark came on the scene with a pound of lsd as his calling card he was looking for american distribution and he had said that he had european labs capable of making an unlimited amount of lsd
0: let me interrupt you there just for a second so i can uh, say something to the listeners you're referring to buying uh, a kilo of lsd and what we need to make clear is that you're going to use that lsd in order to then make the final product you are not buying the final product
1: Okay, back back in 1968, when I bought a kilo of lysergic acid, that was the raw material for making lysergic acid diethylamide tartrate, which is LSD.
0: That's right. That's what I needed and, to clarify.
1: And, and there's a tricky chemical process involved in making it and an even trickier process involved in purifying it.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to clarify, when you were buying LSD, you were not buying uh, lysergic acid diethylamide. You were buying a raw material to make into the final product. Right. And when you say that one kilo that you bought, was, you were able to turn into 3.6 million doses, do you recall what the strength of each of the doses was?
1: So at that time, we're talking about 300 microgram doses. Um, so that's uh, the one kilo of lysergic acid uh, handled correctly produces one kilo of LSD. And from one kilo of LSD, you can make about 3.6 million
0: 300-microgram doses. And that's why you said when the dosage was dropped, so the dosage must have been dropped to about 100 micrograms in order to make 10 million doses out of the same kilo, correct?
1: That happened in later years, right.
0: So that means that people on the street in those days went from taking 300 micrograms at a time to taking 100 micrograms at a time.
1: And now the street doses of LSD are even lower. They're roughly perhaps 50 micrograms.
0: Okay, Um, we're going to get into the technical aspects of this because, you know, people listening to it, they're thinking in terms of when they take uh, 0.81 milligrams of uh, aspirin compared to a whole aspirin or if they take 100 uh, milligrams of another medicine and they're trying to make some sense of what does it mean that if you started out taking a dose of 300 of something, even though we're calling them micrograms here, which uh, you you can tell us exactly how tiny a microgram is, uh, but now all of a sudden the dose is a third of that, what about the effect on the person taking a third of what they were taking and you're telling us nowadays it's even less than that it's down to a sixth you wanna... I,
1: i'm not sure that the change happened suddenly i think it happened gradually over time as among other things michael may be able to speak better to this point because we're getting outside the territory we covered last week but um I think the doses may have come down partly because of a realization that 300 micrograms is a very substantial dose of LSD. It's enough to put you flat on the floor for a number of hours, Um, and a, a relatively large number of people ended up in emergency rooms because they got frightened by the experiences they had. So I think... One of the reasons why doses grew to be smaller was that people were more comfortable taking smaller doses of LSD, Um, that the experience wasn't as cataclysmic.
0: Okay. Um, And continue on with your story briefly just to bring us up to date. I'm sorry for that. I needed to take that little sidebar because this dosage issue for people listening, if they happen to be coming across this material, is very important.
1: It is very important. So in, 19, in 1970, when Ron Stark appeared on the scene, I was thrilled that he showed up because by that time, I was facing a potentially very long prison sentence for um, a second lab in Colorado. And I'd also lost quite a bit of the gumption that I had for making LSD because over the years that I'd been doing it, over the five years that I'd been involved in wanting to turn on the world, I began to, the, the scene be, had become somewhat darker, and there were fewer people with the gleam in their eyes that i had seen in 1965, six and seven, and more people who looked like lost souls. There were more hard drugs appearing on the street, and it was a little bit harder for me to be personally con- convinced that LSD was going to save the world, even though I still believed it was a good drug. Um,
2: I still think it's going to save the world.
1: I hear you, Michael. I understand. <laughs> and uh, let's hope it does. Um, so I finally um, ended up being... Uh, the the LSD that Ron Stark brought wasn't very pure. So I, he talked me into purifying it and tableting it. I acquired a tale of many federal agents that I couldn't shake when I picked up the tablet machine and ended up deciding that the federal agents had gotten much better at their job at the same time that I was getting less convinced that I was on the right path. So I handed the torch on to Michael and said, okay, Michael, you're going to have to take over and do this. I gave him Ron Stark's LST and said, okay, it's time for you to take on the job.
0: Okay, Michael, pick it up from there for us, please.
2: See, Ron Stark was an amazing man. Um, I don't remember necessarily getting acid from him directly. We, we made a bunch of it in, in Europe. But um, he wasn't a chemist. You know, he relied on other people for his expertise. And once we got other people aboard, We made some very fine LSD, not thanks to Ron Stark's abilities as a chemist, because he wasn't really a chemist. He was a very brilliant man, a very um, convincing con man, really. Kind of needed to be a con man. In those days, you had to at least fool people and present yourself as something you really weren't.
0: What was, your okay. motiv- what was your motivation in getting involved with this, Michael?
2: The same motivation as always, wanting to turn the world on. We had, as Tim stated, you know, we had a profound spiritual awakening. All of us did. Not just Tim and me and Nick and, and Johnny Griggs and other people. But, you know, uh, millions of young Americans were having profound spiritual experiences and um we thought that it was our goal to um turn the world on you did and
0: this you did this changed. under the auspices of a church that you founded called the the brotherhood of eternal love did you consider that the lsd was sacramental medicine for your church
2: yeah we always called it a sacrament we didn't call it you know it, it it's I, I think the word drugs is misleading it it, it it's uh 's got to it's tainted too much by things that are really harmful and the things that we do not endorse whatsoever um, um, so many things that are being used now uh, cocaine or methamphetamine and um, yeah, just uh, those are very destructive substances we tend to um, refer to LSD as the molecule or as a sacrament and the word drug is pretty demeaning for something that gives you this 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 total uplifting experience of your life it's just one of the greatest it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my lifetime was being awakened by LSD i mean the number one greatest thing that ever ever occurred to me was LSD awakening what And would... we wanted
0: Excuse me. Pass it on. What was your relationship to the risk involved in, in, uh, being, in, in manufacturing and distribution, distributing LSD? How did, how did well, you relate it? To- uh,
2: I was afraid of getting caught for sure, and we knew that the risk was growing as time went on and as laws changed. At first, it wasn't so bad, I mean, the laws against it, but then they became draconian real fast. The government started getting scared of this, you know. Uh, they don't like people that uh, really think for themselves and really don't march to the tune of the government's music. And uh, we did not do that. We 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 um, spoke out for something different, and and that frightened them. And it wasn't regular drugs like that could be controlled, you know, like heroin or something that that. that that makes you less conscious, this made people more conscious, more aware, smarter in a sense, um, in an intuitive sense, and um, that was something that the government had never seen before and had no idea how to control
0: i want to get an of, i want to get an understanding of your mental state. i mean Dr. Albert Hoffman first synthesized lSD in nineteen thirty eight He came upon it as the the effects of what it did in 1943. It became illegal in 1966. You were already involved with it both before it became illegal in the 60s and after it became illegal in 1966. What can you tell us about the change in your emotional mental state as your endeavor and your church went from being involved in a totally legal enterprise to being involved with the passing of this law into a totally illegal enterprise. What was like life like for you and your family and your children?
2: Well, um, we weren't going to discontinue anything just because it became illegal. Most of us had already been taking illegal drugs, using illegal substances, I should say. Smoking marijuana, I started smoking marijuana when I was 14, that's illegal for sure. and um, Taking other drugs and things that uh, were illegal, probably not that great for you, but uh, when l s d came along um boy i, I put set my sight on psychedelic substances and dropped anything other kind of drugs that were on the menu and uh, we didn't really know what to think about. I don't think we gave it a whole lot of thought really uh we just went forward with what we were gonna do uh it didn't change our vision at all and or our commitment to our vision we remained the same throughout as we are pretty much today
0: Tim Tim LSD what about yourself in terms of the of of any changes in your mental emotional uh, state as LSD went from becoming a legal to an illegal substance and you were involved both before and after do you recall changes in your own state as a, as a function of this change in the law
2: No I don't recall any particular changes. Uh, we we just we just went
1: forth with what we were you, doing.
0: You uh, just went straight forward. How about you, Tim Scully? Did you notice changes?
1: Um, it got scarier, but when when it first became illegal, and then not around the time that the state law passed in California, we also started being followed by federal agents. Um, my friends and I, and so we knew that not only was it illegal but that the federal agents knew that we that what we were doing and they also knew that we knew that they knew and we knew that probably we'd end up in prison. And in nineteen sixty six we felt we, we sat down and talked about it and my friend Don and I and we said, Okay, this is important enough that we need to do it regardless of whether we end up in prison, that it's worth doing this work because it might save the world. It could, it, it should make the world a better place. So we we made a risk-benefit judgment, and because we thought the benefit was so big, the potential benefit to the world, we thought that it was worth taking the risks, which were also very big. And over time, it looked more and more sure that we'd end up spending time in prison but for quite a few years we believed it was worth
0: it tim scully you were a you were a a brilliant student in high school you won science awards you went on later in life i believe even you can correct me if i'm wrong here but my research indicates that that while you were in prison you won a major award in the state of washington for coming up with a a computerized biofeedback method for allowing a woman with cerebral palsy to communicate. So you've had a, a career in science. People say to me, Hey, this guy, Scully, that you had on your program uh, once before, how does, how does a man with, with this kind of, uh, this kind of, of, of brilliance in science take a risk to go to jail for the rest of his life? This isn't a risk for a year or two or six months or something. This is a really big deal. We know that this one fellow, I think, and, and you're both of you are familiar with him, Picard, who was a Harvard guy at one point, is doing uh, one or two consecutive life sentences for LSD. Isn't that correct? That's true. So you understand why I'm repeating this question over? I mean, th- this is an enormous gamble that you both took with your lives. This isn't a gamble like doing 72 miles an hour in a 55 zone, where you're going to get a ticket and and uh, and maybe some inconvenience. Um, you've got to offer us a little more information on what your mindset was and continued to be in order to take this this level of risk. Uh, did you see yourself as 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 similar to the founding fathers in that regard, who are willing to r- risk? their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor uh, for the sake of, of, of freedom? Was it of was it a, 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 a that kind of zealousness?
1: My friend Don and I used to joke that we had enlisted in an underground army and that um, we were putting our lives at risk as a community service just the way that uh, so many citizens did in, uh, in joining the uh, military to defend the country. And um, we thought of it in somewhat a similar uh, vein. That you know, it's not—it's not, it's actually not that unusual for people to um, participate in some form of community service that could put their lives at risk in one way or another. So I don't think what we did was all that wildly unusual. And over the years, I've also come to recognize that having a life-changing transcendental experience of the sort that we had from lsd was not unique either although it's certainly extremely powerful other people have had transcendental experiences through religion sometimes through politics and have ended up being convinced that they had um, the answer for saving the world so um at the time, I thought that the experience we had was truly unique and that uh, uh, we were blazing a trail, but I think that it's not uh, not as unusual as it seems.
0: Was the price that each of you paid by going to prison worth it? Yes.
1: I, I, I think so. I, yeah, I, I I don't regret having uh, spent the time in prison, Um I pretty much signed up for it at the beginning.
0: What did you do? We in- knew there was
2: going to be certain costs. You know, it's it's a risk factor. You can never really weigh it and know. <laughs> we had no crystal ball to to know how much time we might do. It kept getting worse as the laws changed. and uh, But we were pretty good at evading uh, the authorities. So... Um, we managed to get a whole long way down the road uh, before they 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 got us to quit. Um, and uh, I, I I don't regret anything, and we ser- I don't particularly, uh, especially don't feel um, like we did anything wrong. Not we're not sorry about things. We're actually proud of what we did, and um, we
0: accept it. Do you consider that being jailed was a form of religious prosecution or persecution?
2: Oh, I don't know. It was just what happens when you get caught.
0: <laughs> Michael, you were on the run away from the law for a period of what, 10 or 12 years? 12 years, yeah. 12 I took years. My
2: family and moved to the Southwest and started a, started into the um, Indian or American Indian Native American jewelry business. And uh, we were very successful at it.
0: Michael, very few of the people listening to this program have ever had the experience, including myself, of living uh, on the lamb, so to speak, and living with, with an assumed another identity. Can you tell us something about what it's like? Living that way, how different is it from our daily lives, and what did it mean to you?
2: Well, I don't. It wasn't really different. It was. It was pretty um, um, scary and and strange at first, but after we got settled in to our new life and our new identity, um, we didn't necessarily think about it. It's not like we got up every morning and. We're wringing our hands about uh, the police finding us or being caught. We uh, we just kept our heads down and made sure we didn't uh, get in um, contact with any people that, uh, that uh, they could trace us to, our family. We had to kind of not be in touch with our family directly, although we were. And uh, wherever we went, you know, people loved us. Um, we were accepted into various communities. Uh, we we lived in the country in New Mexico and became up, upstanding parts of the communities that we lived in and uh, worked at the schools and did uh, did other contributions and we were just regular people. And you people what, were
0: you had uh, different driver names for driver's license, social security, and so on. Did you pay federal taxes during that time? So, oh, yeah. so we you had, you paid the taxes under the assumed name and assumed uh, social security number. That's
2: well. The social Sec- we, we had an assumed name and went and got a real social security number
0: with the and, with,
2: uh, with that name a lot easier then than it is now. I don't know what it's like now, but it must be harder. And um, yeah, we paid taxes. The one thing I did not want to slip up on was getting nabbed for not paying taxes. I've always paid taxes, so that kind of eliminated that problem and um yeah we had real good id plenty of it too you uh, fake id and basically basically we would had a um i had blank baptismal um certificates that i could fill in and with that with that start i could go to um Department of Motor Vehicles, and get a driver's license, and get build a whole identity based on a fake um, baptismal certificate, and uh, so the rest of the ID that we had, the driver's licenses were all real. The uh, social security number was real. Um,
0: and what did you t- what did you tell your kids
2: taxes the whole time? We made quite a bit of money in the jewelry business.
0: What'd you tell your children about uh, this? I mean, how did they, all of a sudden they have a new name and so on? They had to be careful, didn't they, in terms of who they spoke to at school?
2: Well, yeah, they knew what was going on. They they knew they knew that um, that we were in trouble with the law, um, and you know we it's kind of we feel kind of bad that the children. I'm sure it must have frightened them. Um, you know, there was some of the people that our children knew and loved were shot and killed by the police. And that has to scare those kids. Um, but we stuck very tight together and very close together. And uh, we explained to them, you know, the whole thing. They weren't in the dark about much of anything. They knew that we weren't bad people and we didn't do anything that hurt anyone. We just broke some laws and... Um, and did what we believed in. Our kids today are, are for the most part, very proud of, of us and what we did. Uh, and it was something that they accepted. They were very cool about it.
0: What happened in the 70s in the manufacturing and then into the 80s in the manufacturing of LSD? Well,
2: it didn't go into the 80s, that's for sure. We were done... 70s, yeah, by the 80s, I was in prison, and um, when we were on the run, we did not make any LSD or do anything like that, we got involved in a few other things, but not manufacturing LSD, and uh, that was all over when uh, we got shut down in Europe, and um, that that was the end of that in our life and
0: uh what year was that that you were shut down in europe
2: god you know i'm terrible with years uh, i i am not 70s sure. yeah in the early 70s and what year and did 73 you... to four
0: what year yeah, did... 70 uh, excuse me i think 70. To... Tim, uh, tim... tim knows
2: more about yours tim tim's kept uh better um he's got a whole library of of information Very accurate information. He's a great researcher.
0: Tim, what year did you get out of prison?
2: Uh, When When did I get out of prison?
0: Well, I'm going to ask both of you.
1: Well, I got out in 1987. Okay. And I I was paroled in 1980. Uh, I was uh, in a halfway house for the last few months, so I actually got out of the penitentiary in in, uh, late '79.
0: Do you think Did the government continue to stay in contact with uh, both of you after you got out or not?
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I was on parole, for one thing. But I think they've been continued to be interested anyway, um, just to keep an eye on, on me. And I, 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 I expect Michael to.
0: Yeah, they wouldn't send us any Christmas cards. <laughs> <laughs> did you get the feeling after 1987 when you got out, Michael, that you were being wa- followed or watched? Surveillance of no, some sort? No,
2: I didn't feel that way. I, you know, I was on the run for 12 years, so when they caught me, um, all these old cases that I had, uh, you know, left and left undone were sort of now almost cold cases. They Nobody wanted to bother with them. Our attorney, Michael Kennedy, was um, going to make them pay the price, whatever it was. We weren't going to just up and plead guilty to anything. So they knew that they were going to be really involved in a legal battle. And this is something that started 12 years earlier. All their original prosecutors are in private practice. These new prosecutors had to blow the dust off of the files and wonder who we were, kind of. And although they kind of knew, they weren't really very interested in going the full distance, so that worked to our advantage. It was always I was always looked back and very happy that um, we went on the run. It made the eventual outcome way better than it would have been if I would have just stayed and fought it in the, the heated uh, environment in the courtroom that was existing during that time. this was you know I was going to court at the same time Daniel Ellsberg was going to court also. The Manson family were in the same courthouse, and we kept running into the Manson girls and stuff. And so the times in 12 years, it doesn't sound very long, but things changed an awful lot since uh, we first got arrested to when we were actually uh, going
0: through the court system 12 years later. Tim, what, what do you know about, uh, without naming names, of course, and I wouldn't expect you to know any of them, but except for your research into the Internet, but what do we know about manufacture and, and distribution of LSD in 2016 now?
1: Uh, well, it's my understanding it's still going on. That's uh, still available to some extent. Um, there's, there's a lot more uncertainty but there's always been some uncertainty if you go out on the street to buy illegal drugs. There's always a, a, a serious element of uncertainty in what you're getting. You don't always... What, what a dealer says a drug is isn't necessarily what it really is. And there are more designer drugs out there now, so it's it's not unusual for one of the designer drugs to be mislabeled as LSD. But I think It's my understanding that there is still some actual LSD out there. Um, And the the last uh, rumors that I heard were that some uh, raw material came from the former Soviet Union, where uh, things are pretty corrupt and it's easier for people to bend the rules. But I don't know. Most of my research has been in earlier years, and the the, the stuff I've heard about current activities all... uh, is at the level of rumor. Over the years, there have always been many people making LSD. Back when we were doing it, there were other people doing it too. We just happened to have a relatively high profile.
0: I got an email from uh, Rabbi uh, Michael Lerner, who uh, is the publisher and editor of a magazine called Tikkun. Um, You can uh, check out his most recent talk at the uh, Ali... Uh, memorial service, Uh, he gave a very dramatic talk. He uh, he noted that you two were going to be on the program today and sent me an email, and he said he would be interested in hearing about what effect you think the psychedelic revolution had on the American or perhaps the Western culture. Have you seen real cultural changes that you would attribute to the use of over 20... million people, perhaps more, ingesting LSD.
2: Oh, yeah, lots of changes. Leo, changes happen slow. And they happen slow, so everybody kind of gets used to them. And then they become the norm, and then they're not really considered that much of a change. But, I mean, look at the organic food section of your local supermarket. That's that's a result of the 60s, and I don't know if it's a re- direct result of LSD particularly, but I, I would say it was. It was a direct result of higher consciousness. And... Yeah, we, we started we had a health food store in, in Laguna Beach that was became a huge success in natural juices and, and, and things. It, it changed the way people live. We don't We're, we're not the same you know uh, because of LSD. And a lot of the pioneers, including Steve Jobs and, and uh, a lot of the people involved in the computer world um, had um, their consciousness expanded. Because they use psychedelics, and it's uh, so many. I mean, you see people all with long hair, and uh, the the whole structure isn't as rigid as it used to be, because of the softening of it, uh, because of psychedelic substances. And I mean, I think the the um, the change is.